0: Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the place where talking with your mouthful is not only excused but positively celebrated. This is usually a podcast of conversations over food rather than about food. But this episode is slightly different because I'm eating with an award-winning Ethiopian-born, Swedish-raised, American-based chef and restaurateur. At 24, he was the youngest chef ever to receive a life-changing three-star review from the New York Times. The most you can get is four, so it's a very big deal, trust me. He's cooked for presidents and rock stars and is now head chef at the Red Rooster in Harlem in New York from where he talked to me for this episode. It's a brilliant and compelling conversation about culture, community, race, responses to the pandemic and, well, lunch and all the other meals. My guest is the supremely talented and insightful Marcus Samuelson. But did you actually like the food? No, I didn't. <laughs> no. I admire your honesty. Marcus Samuelson how fabulous to see you it's been a while it's been a while how are you Thank you I'm very well. I'm very well indeed. We know each other because I I judged you back in <laughs> stood in judgment on you back in 2009 on a show called Top Chef Masters. Uh normally on this show what happens is I get a takeaway sent to the person. I choose the food and I choose something for myself. It's slightly different this time. I believe you've got something Caribbean from a place nearby you, is that right?
1: Cross the basically across the street. It's this it's called Sisters It's done by these two Trinidadian ladies are fabulous. And um you know, when you think about restaurant businesses the way we are right now, there's also a side of restaurant business that are thriving. And they're the small, hard working, takeout mom and pop that they're busier than ever. Uh so I just it was a fun sort of like um, yeah. I want to so, see so
0: what, I, what have you ordered for yourself for lunch? Um, Early lunch, your end. Early dinner, mine.
1: Yeah, um, I have a little jerk chicken with uh, rice and peas, um, and a nice uh, little coleslaw salad. And you know, it's not 100% Jamaican, but it's definitely 100% Caribbean, and, and it's done with the sisters. So,
0: <laughs> right now, listen, I have to, I have to quiz you on what do you, and I'm, I'm going to say this in the gentlest way possible, what you've, you've made me do. <laughs> I, I know that when you set up Red Rooster at the Curtain Hotel mm-hmm. here which we'll talk about in a bit you came and spent a long time in London I remember mm-hmm. you saying this is you said I'm not grandly wandering into London I'm going to really understand this city and you you love your football and you, I think your wife's sister at that point was living in London maybe she mm-hmm. still is she, so you're yeah. coming yeah, and so I said, well, why doesn't why doesn't Marcus suggest something? And, and you um, actually named a specific mm-hmm. uh, pie and eel shop in Hoxton. Now, I have to admit, where I am in Brixton, I couldn't get to that one, but I could get to a very famous one called Manzi's. Nice. Right, nice. there are three of them. Now, I need to phrase this as carefully as I possibly can, because you've made me get some of their pies, some of their mash, and some of their jellied eels. Mm-hmm. Marcus Samuelson. <laughs> I hate jelly deals. <laughs> my mother, my late mother, who was officially a cockney, born in the sound of bow bells, mm. she loved them. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a cultural thing. It is, it, and I, I have to be honest: the pies, the liquor, the mash. Yeah. Well, I understand the vibe. So anybody who's never been to a manse, these are proper working class calves. Yes. I mean, did you go to these pie and eel shops when you were there? Did you fall in love with them? You know, I have to say
1: that working, you know, in shortage. You watch in front of you how short has changed, right? It was just like understanding and watching gentrification. There's no other word really rolling in. But a
0: mirror, can it be said for Harlem? Absolutely, a mirror. Where where the Red Rooster, where you open the Red Mm -hmm. Rooster. A mirror for for that and a mirror for so much what's
1: going on, right? Out with the old, in with the new, because the new is obviously so much better, (laughs) you know, uh, wink, wink. But I found peace in going to these places. Okay.
0: So, so now I have to ask you the, the really blunt question, which is: But did you actually like the food? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> I admire your honesty no. because so I have a I have a plate here. I'm going to hold this up um, so you can see it's pie. It's mashed. Yeah. The liquor is a kind of parsley sauce, and I actually I like the pastry very much on yeah. the pie. There you go. Um, I, I, And recently, you know I'm a restaurant critic for a paper here and I've sworn off doing negative reviews, so I'm feeling very uncomfortable. Although Manzis has been around for a very long time. It has its huge fan base and they don't care about Mm -hmm. me. But um, when I got that message through from you saying, Mm -hmm. I want you to go and get the I did think, oh, Mm -hmm. this is Marcus Mm Samuelson finally taking his revenge on those 10 weeks that I stood in judgment (laughs) on him in Los Angeles in 2009 on Top Chef Masters. Red Rooster, Mm -hmm. when you opened it in Harlem, Mm -hmm. Paul McCartney comes to your restaurant, Sting comes to your restaurant, Mm -hmm. Barack Obama comes to your restaurant. How did that relationship come about? People are always fascinated Mm -hmm. about how you get to know a president.
1: I started to cook for the Swedish royal family, you know, when I was in my 20s. And then I cooked for Clinton after that a lot. In the White House? Not in the White House, but just for, sometimes he traveled to Europe, and sometimes he came into the restaurants, and still, to this day, I cook for Clinton, and he's he's incredible. I actually cooked for him and Tony Blair in Stockholm once, which was amazing. Uh, Tony Blair was super nice, and Clinton is always super nice. I mean, they go back to the kitchen, talk to the crew, like stuff like that that Bill Clinton doesn't have to do, but he's very aware of that. This moment will be big for the, for the cooks. But anyway, I think it was like 30, 40 of us, we got asked to send in a menu for Barack Obama's, Michelle Obama's first state dinner. You know right away, if it's not going to work, you're out at the first round. But I, I saw that the state dinner was for Prime Minister Singh of India. And he was vegetarian. And it was also at the same time as Michelle Obama started the initiative with her garden.
0: That was the kitchen garden in, the, in front of the White House. Wasn't yes. It? <laughs> so my first suggestion
1: was a vegetarian menu. And I said to my sous chef, is this taking a risk? So they liked it.
0: And um, yeah, eventually I got picked. You said to me when I interviewed you for that big piece I did, I think it was 2016, mm-hmm. and you were talking about London and Harlem and coming into Harlem mm-hmm. as someone who might not have necessarily been seen as a Harlem chef, mm-hmm. and then coming into London, you said a menu you can learn, but mm-hmm. uh, the place learning a place is different. Mm-hmm. And I've always had that sense with you that you are really intrigued in location mm-hmm. and community as much as you are a chef. I mean, obviously, you've got right. your chops. Everybody knows you can cook. Mm-hmm but it's the community that really fascinates you. Some of
1: that goes back to being adopted, right? As an adopted child, very often you start on page two in life, right? But starting on page two also prepares you to survive in a different way, but also adapt in a different way.
0: It's not just an adoption story. You were born in Ethiopia, and you and your sister and your mother fell in with tuberculosis. What happened then?
1: My mom... um, being you know having us two small kids we were about 2 and and 5 my sister and I and she walked us into a hospital like she walked us into Addis to the capital not only did she do that she found a swedish funded hospital that had great ties to sweden so there were thousands of uh, thousands of kids there right but the nurse that took care of us she said these two kids We can't just put them back out on the street. She took us in, and then she set us up to be adopted to a Swedish family. There's so many ifs and buts, but I always say, don't take luck out of that story. Don't take kindness of, of random other people out of that story, because without those two things, my life would be very, very different.
0: You, you've talked about how a, a certain love of food emerged through mm-hmm. cooking with your grandmother, Helga. Mm-hmm. Helga's meatballs are still on yep. the menu at Red Rooster, are they not?
1: Always will be, always. Oh,
0: always. I took them off but, one day and we had a disaster. <laughs> it was just a disaster, sir. It was bad. I'm like, I'm never taking the damn meatballs off again. <laughs> oh, you got superstitious about it. I, I just wonder whether, and I, speak, I don't speak about it very much, and this is the only thing I'll say. I am the father of adopted kids myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've looked into the whole subject, and control has always been one of those mm-hmm. things. Your story is great, but you lacked any control over what happened to you in your early mm-hmm. years. And whether in cooking you found a form of control, you took control of the world through cooking. Why cooking
1: is so interesting is because very often it's all done out of control, because the landlord can just decide that he or she is going to sell the building. <laughs> or <laughs> your financial bar partner can just say, hey... You know, we're doing something else. That's why the story of cooking is so different than, let's say, a singer or, let's say, a, a, a painter.
0: But when you've told me the story of your early years in European mm-hmm. kitchens, you went to some big hotels. You went to George mm-hmm. Blanc. You, mm-hmm. you cooked in some major michelin star mm-hmm. kitchens. And I loved it. Wasn't there a point when you'd say you got so nervous before service you'd throw up? Every day.
1: Two to three years.
0: Yeah. If I'd been your parent at that yeah. point and you told me that was happening, I'd have ripped you out of there within a second.
1: I saw that, as sick as that was, I saw that as part of the procedure of working. That was part of the tax. Being yelled at was part of the tax. The receipt was that you learn how to butcher better than everybody, that you learn how to cook in
0: a smarter way.
1: I did the math.
0: For me, it was worth it. Explain how you came to, to the US and New York in particular.
1: I was in France. I was done at George Blanc and I spoke to one of the chefs de cuisines. And he just sat me down and said, hey, you're coming with me to Nice. We're going to do this summer setup." And I said, I'm not going to. No, I feel like I've graduated after a year. I I think actually I can do this on my own. And he said, let me explain this quickly for you. Do you know any black chef in the world? Or do you know any black chef owned owned restaurant in the world? And I said, no. I said, that's your answer. It doesn't exist. So why would you be able to do it? I actually know he wasn't a racist. He is not a racist. It was just that matter of this is the way it is. I'm a chef. I'm offering you a a path of simplicity here. Why would you go this other road of uncertainty? You know what I mean? And so what? You decided then you had to be somewhere else? I came back and said, I would leave. He said, maybe you should go to America. And I said, do you know anyone? He's like, no. I knew someone, one of my friends used to work at a restaurant Aquavik in New York, which was fabulous Scandinavian restaurant. It still is a fabulous Scandinavian restaurant. And that's really allowed that connection. I knew I would get the job because at that point I've worked at three-star Michelin, two-star Michelin. If I would And you applied, were Swedish, so yes. that's
0: kind of helpful. <laughs>
1: yeah, so I could. was Swedish, exactly. So I knew the minute they need someone, I think I have a good chance of getting a job. And I did get the job.
0: I mean, I don't want to lead you on this, but something rather dramatic happened at Aquavit, which pretty much Mm -hmm. made your career, didn't it?
1: My career, in many ways, was such a reflection of its times, right? I grew up during the era of screaming loud chefs. I grew up in the era of very um, male-dominated kitchens. I grew up in the era of incredible craftsmanship, too, but also in the era of drugs. And it was something that always scared me. And uh, once I got to Aquavit, it it was a party house. People party, both back and front. In France, service was this thing that we lived for. In New York, service was this thing to get through so you could get out to party. And that was a very, very different side of, um, you know, the industry that I really hadn't been around. It was stuff that I knew kind of in our industry, but not at that level. You know, like I, I was surprised what a partisan scene it was. And if this is 93, 94, no, this is 94, 95, 96. And I was like shocked that this was, whoa, you know, it was shocking.
0: Uh, you became the head chef of Aquavit. Mm-hmm. when the the then head chef suddenly died, mm-hmm. which is quite dramatic circumstances. It
1: was horrible. We, 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 had, um, we had a horrible service where a lot of bad stuff happened. Chef was young. He was 32, 33. And uh, he went out to party that night and um, OD'd in um, just some bad cocaine. You know, and uh, he maybe had a bad service and maybe had some other issues, but he didn't deserve to die. He was not a bad person and he did not deserve to die.
0: Well, indeed not. Mm. but the result was you became the head chef and became the first, the youngest chef in history to get a three-star review Mm -hmm. out of the New York Times. Yes. It goes up to four for anybody Mm -hmm. who doesn't understand the New York Times system. A three-star review is a very high review from Mm -hmm. the New York Times in a city that hangs on the every word Mm -hmm. of the restaurant. It doesn't happen in London. If one of the New York Times critics gives one of those fabulous reviews, it is as if you have been handed an Oscar. Mm -hmm. And that, Pretty much. What happened to you, would you say? It changed, changed my life.
1: You know, Ruth Reichel, truly, she was the New York Times critic at the time. Now she's a friend, i we talked to her after that. And she did give me the benefit of the doubt. It wasn't like we were perfect, but she did see that we were cooking and there was an ambition and there was an intent there. As a creative, to get the benefit of the doubt, that was a break, right? But to get it over to the three, made this our restaurant, the restaurant to go to. And on top of that, the chef was a young black Swede, you know, made it even more interesting
0: and unique. You were hot. You were sexy. I mean, Were you also, <laughs> you still are, darling. Were, were, were you also, I have to say, did, were you the kind of caricature shouty chef in the kitchen? Here's the thing. All the cooks and the
1: sous chefs and the chefs, they were basically older than me or the same age, Right. So, I could connect with them in a completely different way than someone that was 10, 15 years older than them. So, I didn't have to be. And, and the other thing that happened also before that was that nobody wanted to come and work with me because I was no one in New York. So, my scrappy team. You know, it's like you pick a side and you play soccer. That scrappy team. I was Leicester, you know what I mean, when they won. You know, it's scrappy, but I like my scrappy
0: team. Oh, I love the fact you can do a Premiership uh, (laughs) reference all the way from Harlem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when Leicester won the league and many people had to eat their hat and all, all that sort of stuff. I remember even going
1: up to the schools and I did demos Every time I did demo, I had 15 new kids that wanted to come and work with me. So I, I, and that was because I was like four years older than the students that were there, you know what I mean? (laughs) So there was a draw of youth, I think, that was interesting. You know, in the kitchen, you know this, there is a lot of anonymous heroes. And I had, this is the key guy, Larry Mannheim. He was maybe 45 at the time. He was a New York Jew from the Bronx, which means that...
0: And there aren't a lot of those in restaurant kitchens in New York. But he's
1: so beautiful. First of all, like he had that whiskey voice. He grew up in the Bronx in the 70s uh, and 80s, which means that he's really seen everything, right? So when the fish supplier tried to screw us on fish, Larry got on the phone, screamed at the guy, got us the stuff, right? So Larry was that you know, that loud guy that you didn't want to mess with. So I didn't have to be that guy. He didn't know a lot about Swedish food, but I said, I don't care, I don't care. I need him to really watch out for us. So, you know, in New York, when back, especially back then, your food deliveries always got cheated. That 45 pound of rack of lamb, that was like 28 pound and the racks were on top and the bottom there was lamb, but definitely not rack of lamb, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And Larry's like, he saw through all that stuff.
0: i'm not going to go through every stage of your career because it's you know jumping from this restaurant to that restaurant and some projects worked and some didn't i'm intrigued by the moment when your sister Mm -hmm. went in search of your family in ethiopia you you once said to me it was a very particular thing you said my my sister lived a bigger life than me Mm -hmm. as if you were sort of focused on the whole restaurant world and she'd Turned to look at where she'd come from and almost took, took you with her on that search. It was a year or two after our father, our Swedish father passed away. She's like, we need to know our
1: Ethiopian father. He might be out there. I was like, I don't have time for that. And she's like, well, I'll do it. And she really did. And three, literally three years later, she's like, I think I found him. And that was complicated to me because I said, I want to run it by mom if we're going to go there and then when i called up mom my mom was like absolutely this is so exciting we have to find out and that at least it got me more excited about it and i was like all right let's go i'm in
0: you know just to clear the story you found what seven half siblings yeah 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 um and i know that you supported them through their mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. and you went to give a speech at the cia not the spy athlete, <laughs> the culinary <laughs> institute of america what, what happened there there was a very particular question yeah, wasn't there? I mean, when you speak to students, it's one of the freshest,
1: best experience because you don't know what the question's going to be, right? Yeah. So these kids, they were asking me about food in Japan, which I could speak about food in, food in France. And then one kid just asked about, what about Africa? What about the food from your continent? Explain to us about that. And I'd been to Morocco at that point. I even been to South Africa. But enough with, and I just done these chef trips where you go in, you cook for the client, you fly back. And you can kind of say you've been to Marrakesh and you've been to Cape Town, but you really haven't, right? And it was that idea oh, he just really took me off my game. And I think stuff happens for a reason. It was that, it was 9 11. It was the meeting of my father. There was many things that happened in those years. So I was like...
0: Uh, where, were you in the city when 9-11 happened?
1: I, I wasn't in the city, but the week before, and then the weekend before, I cooked at Windows of the World.
0: And right, at the top of the trade centre, yeah, World Trade Centre.
1: Yeah, I cooked breakfast there the whole weekend. We did a, a charitable event. And so, so many of that breakfast crew... You know, there's something when you've worked with people... I, it, it 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 just changes everything.
0: I, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this, but you're basically telling me that all the people you worked with yeah. died when the tower went yeah. down.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was the first time when I really doubted a couple of things. Who am I cooking for? What am I doing here? I started to ask myself real life questions, you know. Something broke, right? And once something breaks, it's very hard to come back to it. You're still going to put in work. You're still going to do what you have to do. But something inside broke me, and um,
0: I think it was for the better. How is your food, by the way? I can see you spooning it away.
1: It's good. It's it's uh, it's a little cold now, but it's one of these good Jamaican meals that I'm going to pick at it all afternoon, probably back and forth. And you know that that, that jerk, g- that jerk is just going to get nice and hard. You know, like spicy, and you know, it sits on your lip for a while. But it's yeah. also when you get in there. You talk to the sisters, they make their roti, they're always uh, complaining about each other, which I love. So it's a good back and forth, right? And God forbid if one of them had off, then the other one comes in sour the next day. And you know what I mean? Like, it's good. They've been in business for 20 years and it's just a good
0: story. One of the interesting things about Red Rooster, which struck me immediately, I I was there only in February. Mm -hmm. It's always struck me. It's not just a restaurant. Mm -mm. The music side, the community side is a very real thing for you, isn't it? I wouldn't be here
1: without civil rights movement and the Great Migration with really, what is that? Millions of African-Americans coming, moving from the South and moving up to New York, Detroit, um, the big cities in the North. And what came out of that is that basically everything that we culturally trade off today, it's food, it's music, it's art. So... For me to do a restaurant in Harlem, where I live now, without truly engaged the community, not on the surface, but actually being in the, in Harlem, but also of Harlem. In January, when you were there, February, we employed 180 people plus 70 musicians that performed at Red Rooster every week. And out of them, I would say 200 are from Upper Manhattan and Harlem. It was game-changing for what that meant in the community, that everybody had an aunt or an uncle that worked at the Rooster. That's why it was such a water... That, well, that's why it's such a waterhole, because it's from that.
0: Yeah, You know I have a, a musical side, mm-hmm. and the musicians who play are just not... They're not just some guys you happen to find on the street. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I stood there with my jaw on the floor as uh, the, a, mm-hmm. a four-part brass section played the intro to Sir Duke, the mm-hmm. great Stevie Wonder tune, thinking... Christ alive, if this was in any room in London, it would be top of the tree, and it's in the front of the Red Rooster. Yeah. I'm just curious, because I want to I want to bring us up to date. You have been extremely active mm-hmm. through the COVID pandemic, which hit New York hardest first. I'll be honest, I, I was there from February 29th to March the 5th, and in retrospect, I'm staggered I got out without... Yeah. Got to get that. Wow, you were right uh, there. You were right there. Oh, up. I was r- right, in the, right in the heat of it. But you've been incredibly active, and I'd like to talk about what you've done. <clears> but <throat> I wondered whether your proximity to power, cooking for prime ministers and presidents, seeing that they're just normal people who do <clears throat> stuff, was what empowered you to do stuff.
1: There was a couple of thoughts in my head.
0: Okay, just
1: like at 9-11, I'm an immigrant. If I'm going to take my family back to Sweden, this is the
0: moment, right? When the pandemic hits, you mean? Yeah.
1: But then the other part of me going out, just going to the supermarket, I said, this would be the biggest cop-out. Here you've been a huge benefiter of everything that Harlem and Harlem has always been behind you. And I felt like I worked for 25 years and I come so far. And now why is this happening? But once you put your fear away that this is happening, this is not about to happen, this is happening, right? It gave me strength and like, I can't leave. There's no way you can leave. And Harlem turned quickly from being on the cusp to the lines to all the community kitchen, the increase of drugs, like the, the catastrophe. It didn't go from a, you know, a, a middle class area to a little bit less middle class. It went from what it was down to the gutter within 25 days, right in front of me. And when that happens in front of you, right in front of you, you can't just say, well, the most convenient thing is for me here to leave. Like, no, 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 you have to help out.
0: You have to. So explain exactly what you did with your restaurants.
1: Well, the first thing was really, and this is, you know this, we are a community. We are a very layered, complex, but beautiful community, the restaurant in, in community. And Jose Andres amazing chef and friend he had started World Central Kitchen a long time ago and at this point we were kind of all used to Jose whatever there was a catastrophe Jose would be that World Central Kitchen
0: I, I, actually, I need to add clarity for this for anybody mm-hmm. who doesn't know Jose Andres is is not your model of a community chef or at least he wasn't he was a very high end chef who did very luxury things Yeah, you know restaurants in LA and restaurants in DC wherever I mean fancy fancy chef and he became something else very quickly
1: well really the the Bob Geldof of chefs, I would say. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Mm-hmm. I'll go with that. I, I, he, he went to Puerto Rico after yeah. the disaster there and he basically started feeding the island, didn't he?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I called Jose and he said, We'll be there. I'm like, No, we need you. No, no, like, we'll be there. And then, like, three days later, and this is like right March 10th, something like that, March 15th, we closed Red Rooster. March 18, we opened back up as a community kitchen.
0: And that transition, that
1: and ex- we, we were about to find out, right? So through World Central Kitchen, we announced that we would be serving the community. You can come and pick up food from us. We'll cook it. And every day, the line got longer. At our peak, we served 1,500 people a day. But since March 15, until last week, we served our restaurant alone over 200,000
0: meals. So it's a, it's a big number. Where did the funding for this come from?
1: We had to do it too, collectively. I mean, Jose was out there. We put a fundraiser together. We used to have our food festival, Carole made up. I turned that over. We turned that over to something called Harlem Serves Up. We got people like Michael B. Jordan, the actor. We got people, you know, of course, Bill Clinton stepped up. And we got all the celebrities that we knew to do a fundraiser with us. That reached millions. How much of money people. did it take? Well, I think it's... I, I don't know the final number. I do know that Jose and World Central Kitchen probably raised $100 million, you know, because it was done, obviously it was not just for the Harlem chapter,
0: right? I mean, you, you have a restaurant in Newark, you've got another one in Miami. Yeah. And they were also involved in doing this exactly. as well. Yeah. So collectively,
1: uh, I knew we, our restaurants and our communities have served about 750,000 people. Uh, but our restaurant in, in New York specifically served over 200,000 meals
0: it 's not the only thing that 's happened during this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the death of George Floyd mm-hmm. and the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. uh, movement led also to a sort of conversation about race and ethnicity in the restaurant world, mm-hmm. one that particularly the l a Times The New York Times have engaged with, and you have been on the trail of the the story of immigrant communities and food, particularly through your PBS series, No Passport Required. Do you think there's greater understanding in the US, even allowing for the fact, and I should say, we are talking before the election. This may actually finally drop yeah. after the election, so we don't know what's going to happen. But do you think there is a better conversation about race and ethnicity going on in the US at the moment, or is it just a bloody mess? Wow, that's
1: such a pact.
0: Yeah, I know. I like to keep, no, them but sh- keep them small. And
1: England is part of that, right? Because England yeah, yeah. is obviously, you know, I think it's... How do I answer that? I say this, Um, racism is the longer pandemic. We will solve COVID, but we will still are left with a pandemic of racism. And I'm an optimist and I hope I'm wrong, but it's all really, I think there is three things to this, right? There is the longer, the older word, caste, right? Class, and racism, where if you think about those three words, racism is actually the youngest out of that. Caste and class has been around much longer. And um, it's also sad in, to humanity that we now figure out how to um, fix far more complex issues than about how do we deal with each other as people that have different narratives. Um, institutional and, and institutional racism. It's not, a, it's not an idea, it's a fact in the U.S., right? It's a fact. And it's really sad when you have, you know, those, those comments and Mike Pence and all of those guys are saying that it doesn't exist, it's not going to age well, right? And the restaurant industry obviously doesn't live outside society, so we have exactly the same imperfect laws and imperfect structures that is within the largest society, it's also in the restaurant. And the restaurant industry reflected of that. And you know, the book that I have coming out now, The Rise, we highlight on forty, we do a deeper dive on forty black chefs in this country. And we talk about how blackness is it's highly layered and complex. Right? If you if you are black and you but you come from Haiti, you're gonna cook different than if you came from Ethiopia or if you came from Let's say another part of the Caribbean and you married a Japanese person. All of these things, when we talk about them, it's quite easy to understand. But when it comes to food, we land under, well, black food is X or black food is Y. And for me, we just have to, as evolved people, we have to have a much more higher learning and bigger dialogue about this. American food wouldn't exist without the contribution of the enslaved Africans and came, the enormous contribution of immigrants. And, you know, it's not doesn't take a rocket science to, to acknowledge that, but we've kind of been written out of the American history in terms of food. And so having this conversation that is happening now is important, and I hope it continues, because it also makes the food history more interesting and
0: better. One thing that has gently gone back is you've got your restaurant back as in Red Rooster has reopened uh, both inside and out at the moment I I do think it's brilliant you got me to eat Jelly Deals and again I have to say it's an important part of London's life not to my taste yeah I love it, that's perfect um, you know. Listen, um, I'm. thank you for sharing thank your you. um, Caribbean lunch with me Has it all gone or are you still got some of that jerk it, I chicken? I still there? got some of that But you know, what a
1: fun me- method way too, to have on, a, on your podcast Just to break, have lunch with people Especially in times like this We need to see each other We need to enjoy each other so Thank you for having me
0: All that remains is for me to say Marcus <laughs> Samuelson, thank you for staying in for lunch with me It's been a, a massive pleasure as ever Look forward to seeing you again soon Thank you so much, Thank you for having me Ah, I knew Marcus was something special when I first came across him on the US TV show Top Chef Masters. So good to speak to him again. Sadly, his London outpost of Red Rooster is no more as the hotel it was located in has changed hands, but I suspect he'll be back in the UK soon. Marcus ate Caribbean food from Sisters in Harlem, and I pushed jelly eels around my plate from the venerable Manses. If traditional pie, mash and liquor are your thing, I can assure you Manze's is the place. There are various branches in London and please do check out our other episodes of Out to Lunch a smorgasbord awaits you including chats with the likes of Richard E. Grant Minnie Driver and Grayson Perry to name but a few do share your favourite episodes comment and give us a review five stars please not three we're not the New York Times you know Out to Lunch is a something else and Jay Rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs with editing from Jemima Rathbone the assistant producer was Rosie Marotra the producer is Selina and the executive producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman next time it's comedian writer and all-around brain box darrow brian the best time to write is two glasses of wine in and then there's a small window of it being you being very funny yeah uh putting on glasses three and four and then glasses five and six are you sitting back going god i was very funny <laughs> very funny back in glasses <laughs> three and four <laughs>